Good afternoon or good day, depending on your time zone. My name is Michael Cannon, and I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us for our conversation today about COVID-19, the FDA, and the right to test. This is an incredibly important topic that has sort of been uh, subsumed by the larger story of COVID-19, but actually the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which regulates the safety and efficacy of drugs and medical devices in the United States, played a very important role in uh, the beginning of this pandemic, and we're going to be examining the role it played and potential missteps that it may have made today. So uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, the United States had something in common with South Korea. Our, we had our first identified case of COVID-19 on January 20th, uh, and so did the Republic of South Korea. But as of uh, just a couple of days ago in the United States, there were about 110,000 deaths due to COVID-19, or about uh, 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 330 per million versus just 273 deaths in South Korea, or about five per million. Now, why is that? Well, we're going to be examining that today, but part of the reason or, or, or part of uh, the most important part of containing uh, a contagious uh, illness, especially a novel uh, disease like uh, COVID-19 and a novel coronavirus like SARS-CoV-2, uh, an important component of containing those sorts of diseases is speed. As the World Health Organization's executive director, Mike Ryan, put it at a briefing some months ago, he said that when it comes to these sorts of disease outbreaks, quote, you need to react quickly. You need to go after the virus. You need to stop the chains of transmission. You have to be fast, have no regrets, be the first mover. The virus will always get you if you don't move quickly. If you need to be right before you move, you will never win. Perfection is the enemy of the good. Everyone is afraid of the consequence of error, but the greatest error is not to move. The greatest error is to be paralyzed by the fear of failure. Well, it turns out that at the beginning of this pandemic, the United States did not move quickly to contain COVID-19. And one of the principal reasons for that is that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for nearly two months blocked the development uh, and the use of reliable SARS-CoV-2 diagnostic tests in the United States and blocked the importation of dozens of reliable tests that were available in other countries. In the face of that urgent need, the FDA imposed requirements that made it harder to test for COVID-19 when perhaps it should have been making it easier to bring those sort of tests to market. The FDA added requirements to its uh, to pre-market approval that it later admitted were unnecessary. So that by the end of February, the FDA had approved only one diagnostic test for this disease, which proved faulty because the Centers of Disease Control, which developed that test, had actually contaminated its own test with the novel coronavirus that it was uh, supposed to detect. And these actions by the FDA created an extreme shortage of diagnostic tests such that by the end of February, figures uh, uh, defer, but any, the United States had uh, conducted some say 400, some say only 4,000 diagnostic tests where South Korea had performed 94,000 uh, diagnostic tests. Uh, at least one order of magnitude greater than the United States. And many argue that this shortage of diagnostic tests allowed COVID-19 to spread unchecked for months in the United States and made everything about this pandemic and the response to this pandemic worse. Uh, the FDA's performance so outraged 
people on both sides of the political aisle, that pressure from both state and federal policymakers forced the FDA to give up its regulatory monopoly over these diagnostic tests and allow states uh, to stop playing a gatekeeper role and play more of a traffic cop role and to allow many states or any willing state to regulate these tests themselves. So to discuss these topics, we have a couple of leading experts on uh, these issues. Uh, one uh, of our speakers is Jessica Flanagan. She is the Richard L. Morrill Chair of Ethics and Democratic Values at the University of Richmond. Her research addresses the ethics of public policy, medicine, and business. She's also the author of Pharmaceutical Freedom, uh, by Oxford University, published by Oxford University Press in 2017, uh, which defends the right to self-medication. Our other guest speaker is Roger Klein. Uh, Roger is a physician and a faculty fellow at the Center for Law, Science, and Innovation at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. He's an expert with the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, uh, a policy advisor at the Heartland Institute, and he has previously served as the Medical Director of Molecular Pathology at the Cleveland Clinic, as well as an advisor to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Food and Drug Administration, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicare Services. So with that, I'm going to uh, thank both of you, Jessica and Roger, for being here. And I want to start off with, uh, with a question for Roger. Can you tell us how important are diagnostic tests in containing the spread of uh, COVID-19 and contagious diseases like COVID-19? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Michael. So, so diagnostic tests have been extremely important. Early on, they were really, really important because we didn't understand what was happening, what was going on. We didn't understand much about the virus, how, how, where it was, who it was affecting, or even its properties. How, how serious was it? How deadly was it? And, and so, diagnostic testing basically uh, is our eyes. I mean, it's how we, we look at and see what's happening. So, yes, diagnostic tests were uh, it proved to be critical and. And and were would have been very important uh, early on as well. So I want to remind our viewers that they can ask questions as well. Uh, you can ask them by via Twitter if you use the hashtag the hashtag Cato Health hashtag Cato Health. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can also ask questions there. Uh, and uh, we'll be happy to take as many of those questions as we have time to uh, accommodate. Roger. How many organizations are there in the United States that conduct that can develop and uh, and and conduct these sorts of tests? What kinds of organizations are they? Yeah, so, so you have very you have different uh, you have you have different actors. So you have clinical laboratories, of which there are, there are several thousand uh, that that can do this. I know uh, the last I checked, and there's probably a lot more. There were around 700 in the United States testing. Clinical laboratories can can. Can develop or modify tests. Then you have manufacturers, of which there, uh, you know, there there are probably fifty at least that that would be uh, large and would be uh, could be significant manufacturers in this uh, in this space. You have uh, large companies like Roche or or Abbott, and then you have smaller uh, smaller manufacturers as well. So, you know, I, I there there there's it's a it's a it's a wide mix. You also have public health laboratories. Uh, who early on and the CDC that early on played uh, a major role in uh, our initial testing. And what are the technical hurdles that these uh, labs have to clear in order to develop one of these tests? This is a novel virus. No one had seen it before. There are no diagnostic tests for it uh, before. What has to happen for them even to develop a diagnostic test? And so, so, so this is the interesting thing in today's world. 
Uh, it's actually not as simple or not as difficult as people uh, would think. That it, it is truly a, a phenomenal feat of American ingenuity that Ch the Chinese, after discovering this virus uh, and, and using uh, American technology, sequenced it. And so, so they published the sequence. We had a sequence. Then, then from there, you just really have to set up what's called a, polym a polymerase chain reaction uh, assay, a PCR test. And you, you design primers, and, and it, uh, basically you amplify um, uh, components that would be that would suggest that the virus is there. So you you know you just you you basically make many many copies of it and detect it with uh, some sort of flash of light or or an, another modality that. Uh, that that um, uh, that shows that you've made many copies of it. It's actually pretty. It, it's relatively straightforward, and there are quite a number of protocols initially, early on, uh, that that were published and freely available for use. So the uh, Chinese scientists uh, published the genome on about January 10th. How long did it take for the first test, the first reliable test, anyway, to be ready for use? Oh, you know, a couple of weeks. I, it, you have to validate it. So you okay. have to run it against samples and people had trouble getting samples, but they can also do computerized um, validations for specificity to make sure that the primers don't interact. And those are those work surprisingly well. But there there were tests tested, you know, it took a couple of weeks really to set up uh, to set up tests uh, once people knew the sequence. And again, there were there were published protocols right away. So they were available before the end of February. Okay, thank you. Uh, so Jessica, let me turn to you. Uh, once those tests are developed, what are the regulatory hurdles that those diagnostic tests need to clear? I mentioned before the FDA regulates diagnostic tests. Uh, uh, you have to have the FDA say so before you can take something to market or use it on patients. What are, were the regulatory hurdles there? So at the time initially, the regulatory process around testing is designed to ensure patient safety and then also accurate diagnostic testing. So initially testing was only offered through an analysis that was kind of developed by the CDC, only a limited number of test kits were available. An alternate test would have required the emergency use authorization from FDA. That was changed towards the end of February to allow the use of tests before approval, which improved access. Um, Another regulatory barrier initially was a lack of certified laboratories with testing capabilities. So most of the clinical labs didn't have the certification to perform this kind of testing at the beginning of the outbreak. So, um, and then there was also like a kind of a non-regulatory barrier, which was uh, potentially shortages of like chemicals and supplies and PPE. Um, so those were some of the kind of initial hurdles to like expanding access to testing at the beginning. You argue, though, Jessica, that diagnostic tests are fundamentally different from the uh, from the drugs or the other medical devices that the FDA regulates. Uh, the FDA requires all of these products to uh, clear its, uh, you know, the to satisfy the agency that they are safe and effective. But you argue that diagnostic tests are different from those other products. Can you explain why that is? Right. So unlike, you know, um, pharmaceuticals or a medical procedure, tests don't really um, pass the boundary of the body in that same way. Uh, so they don't affect like the way that the body functions. They just provide people information in general about their bodies. So the risks of any kind of test or diagnostic are already typically very low. 
And in general, the harms would be informational harms and informational harms are easy to reverse because if people get inaccurate information, you could just correct that by providing them with accurate information subsequently, unlike other kinds of medical injuries. So typically the risk of medical injury is low for any kind of testing. Um, the risks can be made even lower if the unknowns surrounding a test about reliability were clearly disclosed and communicated to users and clinicians. And in our current system, where we have a lot of gatekeeping around medical treatment already, uh, the risks of tests are even lower because typically for a person to act on um, positive test results, they would also have to coordinate with a health professional in some way. So there are a lot of safeguards around patients and access to medical treatment already. And the risks of testing in particular, um, because it doesn't involve going past the boundaries of the body in a more robust way, are gonna be lower because there's less of a chance of medical injury. Okay, so Roger, uh, Jessica mentioned that uh, uh, by the end of February, the FDA had changed the rules, made it easier for manufacturers to uh, bring tests to market, begin testing patients. What was happening though between what you mentioned, when you mentioned the uh, labs had, had begun to develop these tests, get them validated, and the end of February? What was going on? What, what was the FDA requiring labs to, uh, to do before they could deploy these tests? Uh, why was there only one EUA granted, uh, emergency use authorization granted? Maybe you could even explain what an EUA is, uh, emergency use authorization is. Uh, why was it granted to the CDC? And then what changed on February 29th? Okay. So, so to your first question, what, what happened were cl clinical laboratories, which are, which are not regulated ordinarily by the Food and Drug Administration, even when they set up or modify FDA tests, they're regulated by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under what's called the CLIA or Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. Uh, some labs were setting up tests. So at University of Washington in, in Seattle, where they discovered or found the first instance of community spread, they had already developed a test by, by early February. And what, what happened was uh, FDA uh, imposed a new requirement of FDA regulation on clinical laboratories. So the, this emergency use authorization, what it does is it's a, it's a provision in the law that allows the Food and Drug Administration to uh, let unapproved or unclear devices onto the market uh, in, an, in an emergency. So once the declaration is made, the the secretary or the, you know, through the secretary, the FDA commissioner has a right to allow unapproved or um, or uh, uncleared test. Most tests are actually cleared uh, onto the uh, onto the market. Uh, and, and so they extended this rule then to clinical laboratories that, again, don't are not ordinarily regulated by FDA when they're when they're producing tests that are used to test their own patients. Uh, and basically what this did was it, 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 it stopped clinical laboratories from offering testing. So uh, you, you had initially, and there must have been some coordination because the dates are, are simultaneous. I think on, on February 4th, the, the, the emergency declaration was um, made and, and then e, the, the initial EUA to CDC was granted on, I think, the 5th. So they, they were basically simultaneous. CDC had developed a test already. And the plan was for CDC to take that, that, the test and kind of kit it, turn, turn CDC basically into a, a, med, uh, a test manufacturer and have them distribute it to public health laboratories. As you suggested, uh, that test 
uh, that had problems. The laboratories weren't able to validate it. There were only three uh, three public health uh, places, only three states, I believe, that were that had been able to do some testing, and that was one was California, one was Illinois, and one was Nebraska. But but basically, the labs couldn't develop the test. So what what happened was nothing. We didn't. People went and they. I guess they collected specimens. They collected samples, and and but we weren't able to understand what was happening because th there wasn't testing involved. The University of Washington w really wanted to get going with their test, and if they had done so, we may have been alerted much earlier to the the, the wide pre the wide presence of community spread. And uh, uh, you know, as many know, a bunch of people in a nursing home. I think maybe over forty people or fifty people died. Uh, once the uh, the coronavirus got into that nursing home, uh, possibly uh, we we would have been alerted to it earlier and, and maybe could have saved some lives there. So we've received a number of questions, uh, some of them anonymous, uh, but uh, some of them named uh, about the quality of these tests, in particular the CDC's test. Uh, a couple of anonymous, anonymous questioners and Alan Slobodin have asked about why the CDC's test went wrong and why it became contaminated. And Roger, I, I believe this has to do with one of the requirements that the FDA imposed on labs that would develop and deploy these tests, uh, at least between uh, you know, the middle of January and the end of February. Can you talk about what that requirement was and what happened with the CDC's test? So, so my understanding, I you know, I'm not sure the details are fully public. Was that one of the control? They may have used a, a type of control that is prone to contamination. There was some question as to whether there was contamination within CDC's the area in which they were producing these tests. But I think I think there was also I've I've also heard. Uh, heard that uh, that that they required an additional control, and it was it was made it was of a type that would be prone to contamination, and that CDC ended up uh, removing with FDA's permission, removing the the requirement to uh, to run that control when they ran the test. Uh, and another question, I think this is more for you, Roger, uh, comes from Ted Schutzbank. Uh, who writes, did the FDA really have legal authority to require a CLIA licensed clinical lab uh, uh, to receive an EUA prior, uh, an emergency use authorization, prior to starting testing uh, as a uh, polymerase chain reaction uh, laboratory developed test? In other words, did the FDA have the authority to tell these labs that previously did not need to get FDA's say so before they could start using these tests uh, and and then uh, instead to require them to get the FDA say so in uh, in this case. Yeah, so hi, hi Ted, thanks for the question. Uh, th that, 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 that's a subject of debate. I mean, uh, some would argue that the, the statute does uh, the medical device amendments of, of 1976, which, uh, which govern medical devices, uh, do describe in vitro reagents uh, they uh, and some would argue that based on the language of the of that text, um, it, they do have the right. Now, uh, a few years ago, a low, uh, two legal scholars and and outstanding attorneys, uh, Lawrence Tribe and Paul Clement, two a Democrat and a Republican, uh, 
you know, two different philosophic uh, folks uh, got together and wrote a wrote a, a white paper uh, that was uh, was sponsored or paid for by the American Clinical Laboratory Association. And and these scholars argued, or these attorneys argued, that that in fact. Um, FDA did not does not have the authority to regulate laboratory developed tests. So I think it's a it's a it's a work in progress and uh, and, and a question that uh, that isn't fully resolved. Okay, uh, next up we've got a question from Sam Kasman at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's got a question for Jessica. There's a question coming in from Twitter, and Jessica Sam writes: Type one versus type two errors are often used to explain the FDA's delays in approving new drugs. Does this also apply to, uh, or does this also explain the FDA's delays in approving new tests like the test for COVID-19? Uh, given what uh, you said about the less severe harms from inaccurate tests, it seems that that framework isn't all that applicable. Um, Question to you, Jessica. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I agree. So. Generally, uh, FDA's approach to regulating things has been fairly reactive. Um, so we have the FDA after a series of drug disasters led to increasing support to expand their authority. And this kind of reactive approach means that the system is broadly set up to prevent type 1 errors. So they, um, they don't want to approve like a dangerous and ineffective therapy. So for drugs, for example, they want to be like 95% sure that they're avoiding um, approving like a harmful and ineffective drug. Um, but they allow for a greater risk of um, rejecting effective therapies or rejecting helpful therapies. And so on the testing front, um, similarly, they might be relatively risk averse about what they permit or they were initially. And then what we saw was that there are also risks to delay and there are also risks to excessive caution. And the, how you balance that risk, how you weigh like potentially the dangers of excessive regulation against the dangers of approving a thing. Um, that balance isn't really a scientific judgment. That balance is a normative judgment. And so you have to think of how bad would it be if something, uh, if people were allowed to access something ineffective and dangerous or inaccurate, and how bad would it be if they were subject to burdensome regulations? And that's a, that's a values judgment. Um, in the case of testing, because testing, I think, carry fewer risks to the patient, um, I think that that balance should be even more permissive and even more skeptical about uh, depriving people of access to information about their bodies and their health conditions. And Jessica, what if the downside of inaccurate information is that a person gets a false negative when in fact they do have the, the disease, the novel coronavirus, and then they go about their lives infecting others. Uh, how does that affect yeah. the trade-offs involved in the FDA's decision about whether to uh, approve the test or not? We've gotten a number of questions uh, uh, about this dimension of quality too. You know, the rate of false uh, negatives for yeah. the genetic tests that tell you whether you have the illness, the rate of false positives for the antibody tests that might tell you that you've already had it. Uh, those kinds of mistakes can lead people to behave in ways that might endanger themselves or endanger others. How does that fit into the balancing, uh, the, 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 the process of striking the balance that you're talking about? This is absolutely true. So. Um, false negatives are a real problem to the extent that people are doing tests and um, 
having a kind of sense of false assurance about this. Um, part of the reason there are false negatives is like it's tricky to collect an adequate sample. It's really sensitive to lab techniques. So testing is tricky and yeah, like there's problems with reliability. Um, and these problems with reliability are gonna cause problems for things like estimating the case fatality rate, any kind of public health intervention. Some of the local responses were based on unreliable information um, about testing. That said, citing problems with the testing is in many ways just, I think, changing the subject. Because no one is arguing that it is acceptable to have unreliable testing. The claim that I'm making is that people shouldn't be forced to accept no testing or a full lack of access to testing because testing is not yet reliable as it could be. So imagine that we held other beneficial innovations to the standard. So imagine we said, no one can own a car until all cars are shown to be safer and more reliable than carriages, right? So it's a process of like expanding access partly to uh, expand the market for these types of innovative um, new technologies. And then in doing that, uh, hopefully driving our knowledge of how the testing works and our knowledge of the disease to lead to more accurate, more reliable testing. But um, limiting access uh, to new testing or to new technology on the grounds that it's not as good as it could be is you know, holding us to the standard of the perfect, um, which is the enemy of the good. And like the alternative isn't, oh, what if we had perfect tests? The relevant counterfactual that we should be considering is, is it better than not having access to testing? Um, Okay, so uh, we've got the tests have been developed. Uh, we've got the FDA increasing the barriers, barriers to entry into the market, if you will, for uh, these tests in the United States, requiring labs to get FDA approval, whereas before they didn't need to, requiring these labs uh, to develop tests that can distinguish the novel coronavirus from previous coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the MERS coronavirus, um, what have been the what were the consequences of that? How did that, uh, Roger? Uh, what did testing look like in the United States versus other countries as a result of this? Uh, did that affect the level of testing in the United States versus other countries? Uh, how did these additional hurdles affect what policymakers knew about the unfolding crisis? And and what was uh, and then what was the response to this to this shortage of testing that we had both uh, with within government and by the private sector? So, so I think I think we need to understand For, the first thing, I, you know, I did want to make a comment in terms of the reliability of the test. You know, one of the for the most part, I think, the, at least the, those that were created by the better known labs and better known manufacturers were actually from the diagnostic not diagnostic standpoint, the diagnostic PCR test quite, quite good. I mean, there, the, the, the issue with sensitivity is, is multifactorial. I mean, I agree with much of what Jess said. I think you, we also have to understand that the, the time course that you test a person uh, affects its reliability as well as the specimen. And, and I think, you know, we, we, we experiment with some newer types of specimen uh, that made it easier to, to collect nasal specimens, throat specimens. They may have, may have had somewhat lower sensitivity but but uh, made up for it probably in ease of collection. I you know but but I think it's important to understand that if you catch somebody early, they may not be positive. If you get them a few days later, they may. So you have to have more testing so that you can retest yeah. people in whom you suspect it. And I and I think that's what happened here. We basically didn't have any testing, and the rest of the world did. We had no idea of what was going on. And I think part of this was because we 
under underestimated. And 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 I've got to be honest, I think CDC played a role in this. Uh, they they we underestimated the severity or the the extent of the spread, and we didn't pick it up because we didn't have tests. I think CDC and FDA were assuming that we basically didn't have much community spread. CDC's test did largely didn't work. We didn't have much testing happening and we just didn't recognize what was going on. The CDC is a public health laboratory. Public health laboratories um, like CDC and those to whom it or to which it to which it distributed its tests are not are not enterprises that are geared toward testing patients for clinical or medical purposes. They're really geared for their their purpose and they're they're designed for epidemiology to understand the larger aspects of of disease, not to treat patients. Most patients who get real tests are, are get them from hospitals or from commercial laboratories, and 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 those players, the private sector. Were were shut out, and as a result, uh, and, and again, I think I, I think it was because, to some extent, of a, of um, of a belief that that there uh, that that we didn't have a lot of spread here. Uh, we 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 were set way back, and and no, there's no question that um, that we we would have picked it up earlier. Or I think that I, I think it, there's a very strong argument to be made that would have picked it earlier, picked it up earlier. Washington was ready with a test. Uh, there were other labs in in major cities that had influx, uh, you know, an influx of people, for example, uh, back and forth from China, and and who where where they felt that they were at risk for for spread. So uh, I we 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 were set back um, uh, far. We we were set back uh, compared to other countries that that were uh, better prepared along these lines or that um, didn't prevent uh, people from jumping in and, and, and starting testing, uh, you know, for example, in Germany and, you know, where, and, and for South Korea, as you suggest, where, where they had an extensive network of uh, independent but organized uh, laboratories uh, re ready to go. So this is all happening through February. The shortage of tests is, uh, it is becoming more and more apparent as the month of February goes on that we don't have enough tests. We're falling behind other countries. The number of cases is growing. The number of deaths is still small, but it's growing rapidly as well. By the end of February, there's pressure on the FDA to make some changes. Uh, I, there are really two big changes. One of them is, I, mentioned, I alluded to it before, the FDA goes from being a, a gatekeeper to a traffic cop. And the other one has to do with those state public health labs that you're talking about, Roger. Can you describe both of those changes, please? Well, the well, what you know, the, the public health labs had because the CDC test had didn't work, had been clamoring for to or had asked FDA to uh, to allow them to set up their own laboratory developed tests, just as uh, as hospitals traditionally do, and FDA would not permit them to do it. Uh, the the clinical laboratories weren't permitted to use their tests, so. Uh, what ended up happening, uh, I think, uh, I, people recognized it was a problem, and uh, and then FDA, uh, a, they 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 relaxed the requirement for emergency use authorizations, and said that uh, that they could in, that laboratories, for example, could introduce tests, and then they would have 14 days to apply uh, apply for an EUA. This was particularly helpful for commercial laboratories, the large commercial labs. Uh, the like Quest and LabCorp and BioReference, where who, who have enormous capacity and and basically develop this this just truly amazing 
uh, capacity to test in a very short period of time. They got going. I think the hospitals, some of them got moving units to Washington, set up their tests, and they went live. Others were still a bit skittish because of the need to uh, to submit an EUA, but that that it, it made a huge uh, huge impact, and 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 that got got the ball rolling on what was a remarkable feat in my view by the private sector like we've never seen uh, an explosion of of, uh, of of really good tests on the on the market and 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 we're a situation where we rapidly had excess capacity not not too little capacity so the FDA told labs look instead of getting approval from us you could just take your as soon as you self-validate your your pcr assays your genetic tests you can take them to market provide us the data later they also uh because of pressure from new york the both governor cuomo of new york and the new york state public health labs and from a new york republican president trump who then ordered the fda to offer every state public health lab the same deal the FDA allowed public health labs to regulate these tests themselves. Uh, Jessica, were those changes a good thing? Were they a step in the right direction? And are they enough to prevent this, this sort of thing from happening again, the sort of shortage conditions we saw uh, when it came to diagnostic tests in January and through the month of February and maybe even beyond? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that these are a good thing and a step in the right direction to have a kind of more permissive approach. Um, and I don't think that there was really, I think what this reveals is that the initial kind of safety-based cautious justifications um, weren't really warranted because it's the information that people gained was really just information about the human cost of delay and delaying access. My own view is that, you know, I don't think that this is the last time there's going to be a public health emergency. And there's no reason that this needs to happen again, where similar policies and standards could become you know, the standard for any time there's a public health emergency. Or my own preferred view is that we'd have a more permissive approach just going forward more generally. But um, I mean, to the extent that it expanded access, my view is that expanding access is going to be a good thing to open up the power of the private sector to provide people with more information about their health and provide public health officials about more information about the population. So if you are the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, if you are the head of the Centers, Center for Devices and Radiological Health at the FDA, Jessica, and someone identifies a, a novel virus somewhere in the world that begins to spread, it appears very dangerous, you have the authority to alter the FDA's standards for getting a diagnostic test for that novel virus out onto the market. You can write one of these emergency use authorization regulations. Uh, what does that regulation look like when Jessica Flanagan is a commissioner of the FDA? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that the appropriate regulatory framework should be roughly the opposite of the current approach, which is that right now there is a presumption against allowing access until something's been established to be safe, accurate, or effective. And I think that the presumption should be a permissive assumption because of the cost of delay. Um, so I think when people are looking at their institutional incentives at the FDA, um, people who would be in this like imaginary position, they think, oh no, what if it's on me that I accidentally allowed people to access something that turned out to be ineffective, inaccurate, or dangerous? Um, but they don't really think like, 
oh no, what if it's on me that I accidentally held up access to something that could have prevented the spread of a pandemic, that could have um, enabled us to monitor more quickly the development of a disease. So I think that my feeling about how regulators should approach things is that they should be taking as seriously the cost of excessive regulation and excessive delay as they take the cost of potentially releasing something onto the market. And actually from a moral perspective, if anything, um, it's worse if there's excessive delay or excessive regulatory barriers that prevent people from accessing um, information about their own bodies and accessing tests because no one can consent to those regulations. So if people are hesitant about the reliability of tests, if people are um, hesitant about medical devices or drugs, they can voluntarily choose not to access them. Physicians can choose not to provide them. Um, there's a certain element of consent, but we can't really consent to policies that prevent us from accessing um, unapproved tests, devices, or drugs. So I think that the presumption should be in favor of letting people voluntarily make their own medical decisions um, rather than excessive caution. So, the, but does that mean, and here's the hard case, does that mean that I, Michael Cannon, who has no particular expertise in polymerase chain reaction assays, I can market a test that I say I developed here in my home studio uh, to people who are worried that they have been infected with a novel coronavirus and the FDA can't stop me from doing that. I can just go ahead and market that test, uh, even though it's it might have a very high uh, false negative rate. Um, uh, what do you say to that sort of objection that there will be a lot of low quality tests out there on the market? And what should happen well, to someone I, like me who does market one of those tests? Well, we have mechanisms already for preventing people from selling like fraudulent products or making false claims about the effectiveness of what they sell. Um, and I think that if there was a requirement to disclose like reliability or all of the uncertainty surrounding a test um, within like the label of it, um, a rough fraud standard um, and some kind of like liability around fraud uh, should be able to sort of get you most of the way there. Um, so if I had a choice between going to like LabCorp and doing a test or like going to your living room and like buying like the test that you made yourself, I feel like informing consumers about, you know, their differential options is generally a better approach than um, requiring that everybody has a permission slip before you can put something onto the market. And then on the back end, regulating things like fraud. That said, I do think that like public agencies can provide a really useful role as certifiers. So I think that certifying labs, certifying tests, certifying um, even drugs and devices, the certificatory roles could be like hugely epistemically valuable for people. Um, but instead of requiring that people first get a permission slip from the FDA, I think instead you should require that people honestly and accurately report any relevant information about a test um, before providing access to consumers. And then they'd be held to that type of standard through like a kind of fraud regulation and the FDA could um, hold them to the label and then also um, provide certification or recommendations. And does part of the back end, as you call it, uh, involve not just uh, policing fraud, but also being able to hold test manufacturers like the Michael Cannon Test Company liable if 
an injury materializes from the false information that I receive that a patient receives from one of Michael Cannon's faulty tests. William Martinez writes on YouTube about this question, and he asks, you know, are uh, are many test providers immune from liability for those sorts of injuries that I'm talking about? What is the state? So I guess my question for you is, what is uh, the state of the law with regard to liability protections for patients whom uh, you might want to be able to uh, achieve, get compensation for a faulty or fraudulent test on the back end? Uh, so, I mean, my own position on liability is that um, people can like waive their rights uh, to sue in these cases, um, which is like not the current legal standard. But I think that the core that we should be looking at is patient consent and the kind of um, broad presumption in favor of letting people consent to even risky tasks or even taking on risky information. Um, because people make different kinds of trade offs about things like, cost, convenience, price. And so, you know, a person might choose a less reliable test because it's like more convenient or more accessible. Um, there's a broader public health question of like, how should we provide access to tests and how should we encourage people to access the most reliable information? Um, but my thinking on this is informed by kind of other cases with like within the medical device space where I think sometimes um, because people don't have access to the best standard or the most reliable diagnostic, um, they're shut out from having access to any kind of access to like diagnostic testing. And so, um, yeah, I think if people consent to the risks of a potentially inaccurate test that they were fully informed about those types of risks and they, um, they knew that that was a, a risk that they shouldn't, you know, that they could potentially, they, there was no fraud involved that, um, that they wouldn't be able to hold them liable. My, that's been my intuition, morally. Okay, Roger, you said you wanted to jump in on this question of the reliability of tests and what happened when the FDA went from being a gatekeeper to a traffic cop. Um, uh, why don't you chime in? Okay, well, but and on this question, you know, for, for the way it works now, laboratories, for example, can be sued for negligence. So, so I think we need to understand right. and, and manufacturers. And in addition, they can be sued if for Medicare patients under the False Claims Act, which has happened. So, so I think, you know, I think, I, I think, um, and I'm not disagreeing with, with your, uh, with Jess's primary argument, just stating what the law is now, but there are very few lawsuits against clinical laboratories. And, uh, and, and the malpractice insurance, for example, for pathologists who hold CLIA licenses or, is, uh, is very low for that, uh, for that purpose. Um, so what happened with FDA, uh, so, so I think we, what we saw was a proliferation of actually excellent tests in the diagnostic realm. What the, one of the things that they did, they, they, um, they sort of, um, I think because of the pressure, and this, was, this took place in mid-March, they even relaxed further the requirements for EUAs for diagnostic tests, but people were moving on to what are called antibody or serology tests. And the, the FDA um, allowed these tests basically onto the market without review. Now, there were some good tests produced. These, these, these surprisingly, uh, for some perhaps, uh, even though they may seem more simple, are harder to get right because you have potential cross-reactivities with other viruses, for example, other coronaviruses. And so you can, you can get um, 
potential false positives. In addition, when, even if you have a really, really, really good test, um, there, there still you might have, for example, say 1% uh, false positive rate. That, if you test a population that doesn't have, a, that has almost no, no virus present, no, no prevalence, you're going to get many more false positive results than, than, um, than true positives, even though it's a good test. Uh, what happened was we had some good tests come out, but we also had a lot of uh, very poor tests, most of them imported from China uh, or other Asian countries. A lot came from China, but other Asian countries. They flooded the market with tests, I think, that, that were found not to perform well. These were not known reputable manufacturers producing tests that the normal uh, the normal manufacturers that, for example, a lab would go to, and they don't typically set up laboratory-developed tests for serology tests. They, these are almost always kits that are purchased. Uh, you know, the you know the state of it's more more mature generally, and and I think uh, uh, th this actually got got tremendous headlines. Now, uh, Jess can chime in on this. Whether it actually resulted in patient harms is, is unclear to me. First of all, the the use of those tests. Uh, was uncertain at the time. And I think that was one of the reasons FDA focused less on them, primarily epidemiologic. But some are saying if you, you know, if you demonstrate that you've gotten over it and you have some level of immunity, for example, you could go back to work and you you, you don't really have to worry about risk. Now we already we already we know now that if you're young and healthy, you probably don't have to worry too much about about it anyway. Uh, but I, I'm not sure who really used these tests. I mean, people dump all kinds of bad products with uh, you know, that are visibly, you know, are clearly, uh, the way they're packaged are clearly bad. You can tell when somebody, for example, supplies validation data with the test as a purchaser, particularly for clinical laboratories, those consumers are very, very uh, uh, sophisticated. Now, if if somebody who doesn't know anything about it decided to just say, I'm going to set up a test and found the cheapest Chinese test, you know, there there would be a potential for harm. Uh, and and uh, But I, I'm not aware of any any patient injury resulting from this only the the knowledge that uh, that there were some some you know a pretty fair number of of large uh, of very poor of poor quality tests that people were trying to sell in the united states jessica you had a comment on that um first just to agree with um about the point about the negligence like yes so um i think people would be liable for negligence but where I was coming from and thinking about the, the liability considerations when it comes to test versus being excessively cautious was, you know, recall what happened with 23andMe. When 23andMe for a while wanted to provide health data and then they stopped providing health data out of concerns about um, kind of not having an adequate FDA approval for that. And I imagine though that, say that you learned about like the BRCA gene, which now you can learn about again, once again, um, from 23andMe. And you took it to your doctor and you said, oh, I took like a mail-in DNA test that I got at Target. And it says that I have a genetic predisposition for breast cancer. Um, I want to like take preventative treatment. Um, if that's not a reliable test, which like, I don't know if it is or not, but if it's like just like some mail-in thing you got at Target, I imagine that a health professional would validate that with a more reliable test before like proceeding with some kind of large-scale preventative medicine. So we have a lot of other barriers in within the medical system that protect patients from injury. Um, and, you know, ad, there are also costs to erecting additional barriers between patients getting access to information. 
Uh, Roger, a question for you from uh, Brian Schertz on Facebook. He asks, uh, Roger, please clarify that the whole CLI framework and state regulations keeps clinical testing in high complexity laboratories while the FDA adds an additional layer. Can you just uh, reiterate what the uh, different regulatory uh, regimes are that apply to these laboratories and then the tests that the laboratories develop? Yeah, thanks, Brian. So, so uh, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments regulates clinical laboratories and, and tests that are, are uh, performed therein for the laboratory's own patients. So the development, the validation, all of that uh, is regulated. It's also, it also, these um, regulations also regulate purchased test kits, whether they're used exactly as the FDA label states or whether they're modified somewhat in, which, somewhat in which case they become laboratory developed is what the term is basically. And then uh, one ends up um, ends up having to validate them fully. So you have this extensive network and the College of American Pathologists is an accreditor uh, that's a leading accreditor for high complexity laboratories. Uh, they they actually uh, are one of the, the key ways uh, uh, laboratories get meet the CLIA requirements and get a CLIA certificate, certificate, what it's called, it's called the Certificate of Accreditation. Uh, the third-party accreditors, the CAP is one of them, there are others. CAP's the, the leading one. The CAP, and, but I know most about it because I've been involved with it, uh, it has 1,500 pages or so of checklist questions that need to be fulfilled uh, for laboratories that, that are looking for accreditation. So there's a very extensive network of, of, of regulation at the federal level through the uh, through the CLIA program. Then you have state regulation. Some states are quite rigorous. New York, for example, requires pre-introduction review of tests and, and has, a, has the, the most stringent framework. Uh, but others like Washington State have, uh, have regulations as well. And then you have FDA. And FDA is really not, they're not regulating uh, the lab. What they're doing is they're saying a test is a device and we're calling it a medical device. And I've got to be honest, that framework is not is not the most effective regulatory framework for a laboratory test. Europe doesn't do anything approaching it. And with with come with a, uh, looking at something before it's introduced comes also what are called the quality system regulations. And this is a very very intensive document heavy uh, regulatory framework that is that is for manufacturing plant. And it's really it, it's for it's the way you'd manufacture, for example, a, a a stent, a cardiac stent, or a or a pacemaker. And and these regulations are difficult to apply to a clinical laboratory. They don't really seem to fit. Uh, they don't seem to fit at all in a clinical lab. But even for a a manufacturer of a test kit, they don't um, they don't seem to uh, be optimal. They seem uh, they there there's. Uh, the, the the approval process in in you know for these products doesn't seem to meet uh, as Jessica's talking about the risk and but also the the na their their nature in Europe it's interesting because Europe hasn't you know for years they did they didn't do anything like this they hadn't they didn't you know the laboratories attested or the, I'm sorry the manufacturers that sold test kits attested to the fact that they were using good manufacturing practices. So they're, they're manufacturing the tests adequately, but then they're, they didn't have this type of pre-approval and, and all sorts of um, regulatory, uh, 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 I'll call them burdens, but regulatory requirements uh, that, uh, that others do. And, and as far as I know, nobody was complaining about uh, problems with laboratory tests in Europe. So, so I, 
But anyway, these are these are the frameworks. So FDA, as Brian suggests, Brian Church suggests, is um, is, a, is an additional layer for a clinical laboratory. It, it's very hard to make it fit because it's really a manufacturing regulation. It can sort of fit better for the the, um, the a manufactured kit that's shipped around around the country. Um, but I think, but I think that uh, in the clinical laboratory uh, setup, it's 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 difficult to argue based on current evidence that such a system, the imposition of such a system, is go is is um, desirable or necessary. And and we saw the results of it uh, in the COVID uh, in the COVID situation in February. Okay, uh, last question then, because we're running low on time. This is a question I'll direct first to Jessica, but Roger, if there's time, please do uh, chime in. Jessica, in 2005, the Canadian Supreme Court uh, ruled essentially that if the government uh, prohibits you from buying necessary medical services uh, and at the same time fails to provide you those medical services itself, then that constitutes a human rights violation, of a violation of your fundamental right to healthcare. Here at the beginning of this pandemic, we had the FDA blocking people from uh, purchasing the diagnostic tests that were available in other countries or developing them here with high barriers to entry. Uh, at the same time the FDA was doing that, the government did uh, develop its own test. The Centers for Disease Control developed the test that didn't work. And depending on what sources you uh, you you cite uh, by the end of February there are only 400 tests or 4,000 tests a paltry number so there's a, a drastic shortage of tests. Does this is this the sort of thing that the Canadian Supreme Court was talking about? To, it, to your mind, does this constitute a violation of the human rights of patients who would want to obtain these tests? Yeah, I think that people do have a right to access test diagnostics, um, information about their bodies. And the way that we can see that this is a rights violation is that in informed consent context, in clinical context with it's you and the doctor, you have a right to access information about your bodies. It wasn't always this way. So in the 1960s, they did a survey of oncologists and 90% of oncologists admitted to the fact that they would at some times withhold a diagnosis from a patient or even substitute in a different diagnosis. Over time, we've come to see that this is a gross violation of patients' rights. The patients, even if it's information that they wouldn't necessarily um, welcome, nevertheless have a right to know what's going on with their own bodies and to access uh, accurate information about their bodies. Um, this developed over the course of the you know, second half of the 20th century within clinical context, but within the regulatory context, we've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the fact that people have rights to access as part of their medical autonomy in the same way that they have rights to accurate information in the clinical context at the doctor's office. So I do think that preventing people from accessing the necessary means to learn relevant information about their bodies and their treatment decision is a violation of their medical rights. Uh, and we're at 3.59 now, so I'm gonna have to end it there. Uh, Roger, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that question offline. But I want to thank everyone for participating in this, all of our viewers online, and especially Jessica and Roger for their thoughts. Uh, if you want to learn uh, more about uh, the Cato Institute's health policy work and this issue in particular, uh, you can sign up for the Cato Health Newsletter at Cato.org. You can follow us on Twitter at, at Cato Health. 
And if you want to join in this conversation, uh, uh, the best way to do that on Twitter and elsewhere is with the hashtag Cato Health. Again, I'm Michael Cannon, the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Thank you for joining us.